0: Welcome to The Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 8. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in The Boiler Room, I'll be replaying a recent webinar on Q3 2022 franchise real estate with guests Josh Lewis of National Retail Properties and Chelsea Mandel of Ascension. We will talk real estate deal flow, cap rates, due diligence, change in market conditions, risk factors, rent coverages, brands, geographies, and many other nuances that affect real estate valuations, acquisitions, and divestitures, particularly in these changing operating environments for underlying franchise businesses. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multimillion dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk, delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, Large investors and franchisors on a monthly basis, feel free to find our content at unbridled capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room well i I'll just start rambling a little bit and then we'll and then we'll get going. I thank you for joining our webinar and for those of you who will listen to this on podcast, probably I guess in maybe twenty one or twenty eight days at the restaurant boiler room. When you hear my voice, I just want to say thank you for listening. podcast is really going really well. We're excited about it. Uh, we do that every month. Uh, let's see. Just a little bit of ground rules here. We'll go for one hour. And then uh, when we go for one hour, you guys can answer and gals can answer a question. You know, ask a question if you like. There should be a chat feature at the bottom. And if you want to ask any kind of question during the presentation, please do. And we'll, uh, you know, let's the three of us kind of eyeball the questions as they come in. We can just kind of answer questions as they come in. Keep in mind, we will have a replay available on our website at unbridledcapital.com. And then we will email you a copy of the replay if you signed up as well. So, so look for that in the next 72 hours. Other than that, I think I would like to say a couple of things, like I usually say, state of the business for unbridled. Yeah, I just think for the franchise M&A activity this year, we've seen a little bit of a of a pullback. It's been quite a bit slower for us than it was last year. A lot of that was expected. And if you'd listened to me a lot, you, you've heard this before. But 2021 was super pumped and supercharged with MA. And there are a lot of reasons. We had COVID sales, we had record profits, we had low interest rates, we had a lot of buyers coming back to the marketplace. And clearly, as well, we had kind of the threat of increased taxes that were driving a lot of decisions on the sellers' ends to try to beat what they thought would be capital gains tax increases that didn't happen ultimately. So that's what happened in 2021. We knew it would be down a little bit in 2022 like we'd have a sophomore slump but when uh you know with the inflation, the high gas prices and the uh and the rising interest rates kind of combined and kind of sagging consumer dem- demand it kind of combined together to to slow things down a little bit more than I expected and so We continue to be a little bit off in terms of volume and activity. We're hoping that'll happen. that They'll pick up later this summer and into the fall. But clearly we have a situation where, you know, a lot of operators' businesses are worth a little bit less than they were last year because EBITDA is down as a measure of EBITDA and multiple of EBITDA business just isn't worth as much. So so we're going through that adjustment a little bit, but I expect like everything else, it'll pick up in probably six months, maybe a little bit less. But we'll just keep an eye on it and you'll always hear my perspective on, on here so here we go let's get started with two minutes in and i wanted to just thank both josh and chelsea for being here i'm excited for today's webinar and when you hear at the podcast these are two really cool experts that know the single tenant market on sale leaseback plenty of experience in franchise and restaurants particularly and they also know that the the 1031 market the sale leaseback market really well and uh, both have uh, different areas of expertise Both are excellent at what they do. And I just would just start off and let's start with Chelsea and then go to Josh. You guys introduce yourselves. Thank you for joining.
1: Thanks, Reg. Now glad to to be here. Yeah. So I'm Chelsea Mandel, you know, co founder, managing director at Ascension. So we focus on corporate real estate and Sale East backs, typically working on behalf of private equity firms and other middle market and lower middle market companies. Do a lot in the restaurant space, a lot of the franchise space. QSR, also active in just kind of broader single tenant real estate, like industrial, medical, healthcare, etc. So my background, you know, I started on the principal side, went to the advisory side, you know, have since launched Ascension earlier this year, and yeah, specialist, you know, specialize in sale packs. Glad to be here.
2: Thanks, Chelsea. Rick, thanks for having me. I'm an SVP of acquisitions at National Retail Properties. We're a public REIT that invests uh, exclusively in single-tenant retail, including restaurants. Uh, We own about 3,300 properties in 48 states, including over a 1,000 restaurant properties, about a $12 billion enterprise value, uh, $8.5 billion market cap. Principally doing sale-leaseback transactions, also do some reverse build-the-suits. And uh, you know, quite active. Have been doing franchise restaurant stuff for a long time. Uh, I've been here 14 years. Prior to NNN, uh, I was uh, in investment banking, uh, real estate, capital markets, and did sale back advisory work. So I've sort of switched sides of the table in the opposite uh, manner as as Chelsea. So.
0: You know, you said you're an SVP, and like for me, I'm like SVP, SVP. That sounds like Scott Van Pelt on ESPN, yeah. and you kind of look like him a little bit. Yeah, I just you,
2: you, so you know, know got
0: you know,
2: you and I are both follically challenged like he is. So,
0: <laughs> well, very cool. Thanks so much for the introductions, guys. Uh, so, first question to both of you. His macroeconomic picture. So, I got a first question here: Is it, how's the real estate market for buyers and sellers changed so far this year? I gave you my perspective on businesses. You're the experts on real estate. What do you think? You know, the, you know, we don't go in the same order. Chelsea, you don't want to go first, and Josh second. We'll just tackle it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot going on in the market. You know, interest rates are up 100 plus basis points since earlier this year. We have inflation at nine percent. You know, there's a lot of things kind of just. Macroeconomically, um, that we're kind of all dealing with, but I think in terms of you know deal volume and you know and pricing, you know I would say interest rates have certainly moved, but cap rates thankfully haven't moved as aggressively. You know what we're seeing is I would say about fifty to you know eighty basis points of kind of cap rate spreads, um, and so what you are seeing is a lot of volatility, right? So you know, CMBS market, CLO market, you know, you are kind of seeing groups that are relying on asset level financing, maybe having a little bit of a harder time, you know, getting their deals done accretively. creatively. So I would say from our perspective, you know, on the seller advisory side, we are kind of seeing a widening gap between those cash buyers, you know, groups like Josh and his firm and, you know, groups that are private equity funds or relying on asset level financing. Um, it also takes us into the 1031 market pretty frequently. A lot of these buyers are cash. They are a bit more insulated from kind of the, you know, challenges in the financing markets. But I think generally, you know, from a demand perspective for the product that we offer on the sale-leaseback side, you know, the demand is still there, you know, especially with the volatility. Buyers are kind of played to, to quality assets and sale-leasebacks with long-term leases and good credits, good operators, good brands. You know, those are still the deals that people are wanting to do. So from a volume perspective, we're still running competitive processes. And, you know, I think activity is has still been actually very strong. Yeah.
0: Maybe stronger than what we're seeing on the uh, operating company side in the M and A world. Uh, interesting. What do you say, Josh? What, what do you
2: think? I mean, you guys covered sort of the macroeconomic backdrop: GDP negative two quarters, inflation forty-year high. The ten years moved uh, north of hundred basis points since year one. LIBOR and two and the two-year Treasury have moved even more than that. High yield spreads have moved even wider than that. So. Sale leaseback, you know, looks pretty attractive on a relative basis and particularly in a lot of the transactions we're involved in, which would be, say, an M&A related sale leaseback, you know, the sale leaseback, you know, a marginal move in cap rates, 25, 50 basis points is, is pretty de minimis. You know relative to how the cost of other capital has has moved. And frankly, it's not only a movement in in underlying rates and spreads, but there's also just you know less liquidity in other capital markets. It's hard to do a high yield deal. It's hard to do a high grade deal. Uh fortunately, as Kelsey said, we're a we're an N and an unsecured borrower. We don't use any asset level financing. We've got A big balance sheet and and very long dated capital, and so uh, that's been very advantageous versus you know those folks that are relying on debt financing. So,
0: so you guys got a war chest of money. Let me see if I can unpack this. You got a war chest of money. You don't borrow money to buy real estate. You're so you're a little less sensitive to changes in interest rates relative to other people who do like borrow eighty percent of the money to buy the real estate. But either way, the interesting point of the comment also is. And, and comment on both these things, that what I just said, and also the second piece of it is you're seeing that, and I agree with you, that there's been less negative movement in both cap rates and interest in acquiring, you know, on the real estate side than there has been from an MA standpoint on the, than on the corporate side, on the on the business side, where restaurant lenders have tightened a little faster and a little more.
2: Yeah, and just to be clear, I mean, we are we do use debt capital, but it's all on a senior unsecured basis. It's a corporate basis, it's you know, roughly kind of 40% leverage in our capital structure. And our cost of capital has has moved higher. Fortunately, we were sort of well positioned for that, and we're not reliant on say the CMBS market or doing mortgage financing to fund an asset or a portfolio of assets. So, so you know equity prices have dropped pretty much across the board debt costs have gone up so cost of capital has 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 moved higher but on a relative basis it hasn't had that meaningful an impact on cap rates i think cap rates will likely continue to move a little wider as the fed continues to tighten but again a, a 25 or 50 basis point move in in cap rates really isn't all that meaningful from a multiple perspective and we'll talk a little bit more about that later but you know that effective move just isn't all that meaningful relative to to other types of
1: cap our real estate transactions they could be you know thankfully as quick as like 30 days but it could also be 120 days and so i think cap rates are a bit of a lagging indicator Versus like the debt market, which prices, you know, spot, they could retrade your terms today. So I think there is that timing component that also is taken into play here.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And I would say that, you know, because of that, there is a lag. And so we have seen some deals. Fortunately, we haven't been sort of in this camp, but I mean, deals have gotten retraded. We've seen deals that have fallen apart as a result of sort of move in the capital markets. So there is a, the longer nature of these types of transactions does make it harder to sort of value deals or price deals initially, because we're all looking at the yield curve and, and listening to the Fed talk about, you know, rate movements and sort of wondering when and if that's going to happen and how that's going to happen. And a month ago that the, the 10 year was at three and a half percent. We're down to 280. So we've got an inverted curve. So it's it's sort of strange times, but I think we're doing our best to navigate it. And I think you know, the sale lease back market is is very open. There are just there are some players that are sitting on the sidelines because they are more debt reliant, more asset level financing reliant.
0: Well, it's an interesting comment about the retrade portion because you know when you're selling businesses. There's all kinds of things that can happen that can cause or force, a retrade or a discussion about a retrade. Some of it is that you go through and you find, you know, the EBITDA drops a, a, a ton during due diligence when you're selling a company, or maybe you go you come in and there's all kinds of deferred capex in the stores, or there's there's you know there's there's a number of reasons, but typically you don't hear about uh, real estate getting retraded much, you know, and so even just to hear that comment, at least on the deals that we've done, we we haven't seen a whole lot of that historically, but we're doing one deal right now that has that element in it too, so. I think that's something that we should, you know, as people listening and, and being concerned about real estate, we should we should know that that's maybe a little bit more on the table going forward because of the interest rate environment that we're in. Let's let's talk a little bit. Let me change and and to ask this question: How is deal flow right now in the in single unit sale leaseback market and in port, portfolio deals in restaurants? To the extent you have a comment on that, does it mimic my earlier comment? Things are a little slower than they have been. Uh, what do you think?
1: Yeah, i mean yeah. i could, I, mean, I think they're they're a little bit slower than you know things have been obviously q4 was like you know everybody's favorite quarter things were just booming but i think you know kind of generally just given all the different macro factors this year you know year to date it has been a bit slower but i think from our standpoint you know what we're doing is we're seeing a lot of valuations we're seeing a lot of proposals you know on the deal side i think a lot of the deals that we're seeing are like the MA deals where you know, we're bringing in, you know, a group like Josh's or you know another buyer to execute a simultaneous sell back. Typically, it's private equity firm. They're they've been consolidating up these family owned operators. The sell back's is a big component of their entire cap stack, and so we're we're structuring that simultaneous deal, and so we're relying on the institutions to kind of come in, you know, with our clients taking down opco while they buy the you know the real estate, and then a lot of what we're seeing is you know they're going out and they're flipping these deals into the ten thirty one market and. You know, good for them. They're making a nice spread on it, but it is a different deal, you know, coming into that kind of simultaneous transaction. Replacing a big piece of the sponsor's equity check, it is kind of a higher risk deal. Um, I would say that's a lot of what we're working on. We're seeing a lot of proposals, you know, for Pizza Huts and Sonics, Zaxby's, you know, we just did a number of Taco Bells. So we are seeing good activity. I think on the single unit side, it's typically kind of after that initial, you know, institutional portfolio deal that we're then flipping those out into the 1031 market.
2: Yeah, good. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I would say, Rick, it has been a little bit slower on the larger kind of M&A rest QSR or, or even casual dining kind of restaurant deals where, you know, as Chelsea said, there's either a strategic or perhaps a sponsor that's coming in and wanting to use say, at least back capital to fund an acquisition. We are seeing it perhaps more in some other asset classes outside of restaurants. We're, We're working on something with Chelsea right now in that regard. But as far as kind of big restaurant portfolios, not seeing as many deals. And I think that's to your point earlier that a lot of deals kind of got pulled forward. You're also dealing with a year ago you were working off of great TTM set of numbers and and today your TTM set of numbers are you know maybe showing some positive comps on the top line but you're seeing margin contraction and so you know there's a bit of a disconnect between what sellers expectations are and what buyers expectations are and I think that kind of leads into you know, where we're very focused and that, you know, kind of gets into the underwriting of of the unit level cash flows among other things. So, so deal flow on, on restaurant stuff is a bit slower. We are looking at one very large transaction right now in the restaurant space, but, and I think that deal has some elements of that uncertainty around cash flows associated with it, which is, is complicating matters.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I want to talk. Let's make sure we don't forget this because I want to later talk a little bit about rent coverage ratios and how you guys think about rent coverage ratios, which is a key metric at which buyers look to stay above 2.0 when they when they do that. Matter of fact, let's just tackle it now. So, you know, typically. Good old redneck here says, "Oh boy, like me," says, "Oh boy, you know, I got a store doing a million dollars in sales, and I'm going to slap an eight percent rent on her, and then I'm going to give her a five and a half cap rate, and then off we go into the sunset, and that's a whatever the number is. It's probably a million four. You know, give me a million four less transaction costs, and then the, and then I'm going to take a an eighty thousand dollar lease on twenty years with ten percent increases every five years, and that's how we do it." And everyone's going to take that 8% rent just because that's what everyone does and the end. But but clearly, you guys are, are interested not only in cap rates, but rent coverage ratios. And rent coverage ratios are dependent upon your view of EBITDA. And so inherent in my question is, what do you think? I mean, how do you look at EBITDA? How do you think about rent coverage ratios? And how do you go about buying real estate? I mean, how do you how do you think about pricing it and buying it?
1: Yeah, I could start. And then Josh, if you want to weigh in, I mean, you know, I think that the metrics that you mentioned is typically what we're looking for when we're sizing up our proposals, you know, 8% rent to sales, two times coverage at the unit level, you know, making sure the cap rate is taking into account the brand, the sponsor, the operator, you know, all of that. But I think what we're seeing now is that that EBITDA, you know, that numerator in your EBITDA to rent isn't as straightforward as it used to be. Like Josh said, you're not looking at a clean TTM and saying, okay, great. That's the number. You know, you're looking at the COVID bump, you're trying to make your adjustments or the buyers and Josh could definitely speak to this, They're asking for more detail. They want more financials. They really want to, you know, make sure that they're understanding that EBITDA and that they're giving credit to all the different factors in the macro environment that have either led to outsized numbers or, you know, below average numbers. And I think that adjustment, you know, true adjusted EBITDA is, is really being looked at a lot more carefully. But Josh would love to hear from your perspective to make sure that our valuations are going to be, you know, acceptable by buyers.
0: Look at him over there. He's just he's he's like got a little frown on his face. He's like he's like got the he's got the like Ebenezer Scrooge look about EBITDA. Like, go ahead, Josh.
2: Look, all of our deals are sort of a four-legged stool, and they always have been. It's it's real estate. It's unit-level economics. It's credit. It's sort of the the more art art than science piece, which is, you know, brand and management team and competitive dynamics and all that. And so we think about all of those things. So it isn't just a rent to sales or coverage sort of uh, equation that is how you determine rent or how you determine cap rate. It's all of those things. And it's, it's not a perfect box that, I, you know, it's not all science. But There has been more art to the sort of unit level economic underwriting. And that's we're going back to if the store has been around for a while, we're going back to maybe 18 or 19 and seeing how that store was performing pre-COVID. And maybe we're taking kind of a 19 to 21 three-year average. And then we're looking at sort of the latest set of TTM numbers. And folks that think that they can kind of... Look, I think some of the buyers that Chelsea might go to in the 1031 market may not be as sophisticated as that. And maybe, okay, they take an 8% rent off of a TTM March set of numbers and they live with that. I'm going to say, well, let me look at the June numbers because all the sort of labor and COG stuff, you know, you may not be fully capturing that in in a TTM March 31 set of data. So we want to make. And Chelsea mentioned that you know some buyers such as ourselves are buying portfolios and then flipping the assets. We aren't generally in that category. We are long-term buy and hold investors. I want to collect rent for 15 or 20 years. And so I need to make sure that whatever rent I put in place is sustainable, that I'm going to collect that annuity stream of cash flows. And so... You know, I need to make sure that that rent is is going to be covered in in a downside scenario, and and if my tenant should fail, I also need to make sure that that rent is, from a real estate fundamental standpoint, something that's replaceable or close to replaceable. So, you know, you kind of gather all this data and utilize your expertise and 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 try and evaluate sort of what is a, the appropriate set of numbers. The other piece of this is that. Some buyers are are wanting, you know, to put more rent on the asset. Some buyers sort of think like I do, and they say, look, I want to make sure that, you know, maybe we're a family office buyer and and we're in the business of owning QSR because it's a great cash-flowing business. It survived for eternity. It made it through COVID so well. And so we wanna make sure that that continues. And so, you know, they may not wanna push rents to the 18th degree. And so it's all sort of a, it's fuzzy, but you, you kind of work to a number and and say, look, these are acceptable level of rents. And then you you put a cap rate on it. I think it's
0: really good. Thank you, know, Josh, thank you for that. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, I'd make a couple of quick comments to that. Number one, I think hopefully for those of you who are listening and watching, you're gonna, you, I think you hopefully heard that there's a little bit more scrutiny on the business operations now than what there has been historically, okay? So that's just the state of the world that we're now living in. And that's, uh, you can expect that your buyer of your real estate, whether it's through an advisor like Chelsea or a direct buyer like Josh, they're probably going to look at it a little bit more like a buyer of, of the business, maybe, you know, they're gonna wanna know the EBITDA and they're gonna wanna know how the business fundamentals have changed. To protect their their uh, real estate investment decisions, so that's that's number one. And then number two, I guess we'll we'll, um, well I'll just punt on it. We we'll keep going, or we'll we'll be we'll be fast. Um, one twenty two. Okay, so here we go. Let's go to the next question then, instead of me ramble. Number five on the list. Well, I, well number four was how to. Why would an operator do a sale lease It's kind of a go ahead. You know, give give your two cents. Why why would I want to do a sale lease back?
1: Yeah, I. I... I mean, I think it comes down to just operators and, you know, private equity firms, whoever they have a higher and better use of capital than owning buildings, you know, so it's whether you're paying down debt or using the proceeds to finance growth, buying new locations, opening up new stores or buying new equipment, you know, it's just not a good use of their capital to be tied up in these non earning assets for the company. If you're in the business of operating restaurants, you want to operate restaurants and not be in the business of, you know, being a Josh being a landlord.
2: Couldn't agree with more with what Chelsea said, and and I think you know then it's the math piece of this, and that's the fact that a six cap is a sixteen plus times multiple on cash flow, and and your business probably isn't worth that kind of multiple unless you're somebody very special. So sort I'm of,
0: special. I'm very special.
2: <laughs> I mean that look, there are some there are some businesses out there that are trading at multiples higher than that, but yeah you know, I, like I like to think of rent as basically foregone ebitda and if you can get a materially higher multiple on that rent on that ebitda then you should try and do that and oftentimes there's a pretty big gap between you know where you're selling a business at five six seven eight times maybe it's 10 times in a taco bell and a you know 15 16 17 times multiple uh, that you're effectively getting through the cap rate And and again As I said before, you know, even if cap rates have moved 50 basis points, you're probably only looking at a a turn or so of lower multiple. So, you know, 16 and a half becomes a 15 and a half. It's still a big number.
1: It's just financial arbitrage. Either you have a use of proceeds or you're just, you know, financial engineer.
0: Yeah, the changes in the valuation of someone's total company. Are relatively low with a slight shift in cap rate versus a big shift in the change of debt financing on the on the well well I actually I'd say that opposite you actually see a really big change in the in the valuation of a company based on the based on the change in 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 cap rate. Well, let me ask let me ask you guys this like let's let's tackle this idea of eight percent rents I, I get this asked a lot not so much in the Yum system KFC Taco Bell Pizza Hut because you know, corporate, the franchisor will kind of come come in and kind of say, you know, we're kind of capping rents at 8% of sales fixed at closing on trailing 12-month financials. But in other brands where there's not maybe as much of a policy, you know, I, I feel the question a lot, like, why can't I put my rent at 9% of sales? Or why can't I put my rent at 10% of sales? And of course, my answer is that once you once you do that, and you you know you you do a lease-adjusted leverage calculation, you almost have because because it's so heavily factor that calculation into how high the rents are. You really aren't left with any business value, and no one will lend money against you. But uh, m- most of the franchisors are also doing those same calculations and not wanting the lease-adjusted leverage to be over like five or five and a quarter or five and a half, depending on the brand. Um, But what say you to someone who gets through to you and says, I want to I want 10 percent of sales rent on my on my piece of property in restaurant property, restaurant property, let's say.
1: Yeah, it's hard. We've you know, we've had operators, you know, a lot of the time it's. It could be the private equity owners who just want to juice proceeds and we get it you know especially it's simultaneous with the deal right it's it's directly replacing equity but i think at the end of the day you know there's the operational concern for is this sustainable for the operator do you want to be in business for the landlord or you know do you want to actually have a a healthy company that generates positive cash flow but it's also you know from the investor's perspective and from having been on the investment side like that rent's not going to be reproducible. So it just makes the whole real estate fundamental equation much more challenging because maybe this operator could afford it, but then you're thinking about your exit, potential mm-hmm. dark value. You're in the real estate for a basis that makes no sense. You can't replace the rent because this is an acre site. And you know, that that rent number makes no sense in the context of what you could actually release it for if this operator were to go away. So I think there's a lot of different considerations, both from the financial, you know, health of the company and being able to. You know pay this rent for what could be 20 years. I mean, these are long-term, you know, obligations that you have to live with, but also from the investor's perspective of do the real estate fundamentals check out from the basis standpoint? And is this rent going to be, you know, replaceable?
0: What you said about being miserable about working for the landlord. I mean, I think that's a really, you know, I always tell people that my heart is always in the like, I come from the standpoint of the mid-size operator. That's kind of where I cut my teeth, right? Like the 30-unit. Taco Bell operator or whatever. I mean, I have watched in my 20 years of doing this, uh, operators who have done, Chelsea, what you've said, which they've they, they've either inherited leases or they've done sale leasebacks either at too high of a, of a number or the business dropped in sales and the rent therefore was really high. And I've seen them do what you described, which is working for the landlord, operating this business with a noose around their neck, and and really uh, working just for the landlord, and it's some of the most miserable stuff I've ever seen. Like people who are under that, because you can't get it get out of it. It's almost like it's a self fulfilling prophecy of like, you know, spiraling. So uh, I think it's a really really common you know thing to be thinking about. Josh, you got a comment on it too? And oh, I, guess- I
2: mean, I, I think Chelsea nailed it. I mean, it, it you know, again, we're looking at it on a long term basis. The rent's got to be sustainable. There's probably some rent bumps in the lease as well. So, you know, that rent's going to be increasing over time. You know, there's got to be a margin of safety. And and again, to us, you know, the, the coverage metric is probably more important than the actual rent to sales, but I've seen very few, you know, businesses that can truly support, you know, something north of eight, eight and a half percent rent to sales. I mean, you could have some... You can have some very high margin businesses. There's some very high margin concepts, but generally speaking, you know, we got to think about, you know, what what are those absolute level of rents? Are those replaceable? Our executive team always harps low, you know, low rents, low price points. You know, it's at the end of the day, that's how we best protect ourselves. Uh, and so, um, I'd rather get a little lower yield at a lower Rent to sales or higher coverage than higher yield, higher rent. That um that that's that's not really kind of the the trade-off I want to make.
0: I saw a question come in here, which won't surprise you guys. We decided to punt on it when we did the practice session. Are the real are the risks real that the 1031 tax deferrals will be restricted in the Biden 2023 budget? And what's the cap rate impact of that? I'm, I suppose you guys are going to say I don't know, you know. But 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 there, is been ban- there has been banter that anything more than a half million dollars of gain would have to be—is—is is that what it is? It would—it would have to be realized and yeah, taxed half a this year?
1: Yeah, I think half a million is protected, and that's everything else is just subject to, I guess, traditional gains. I I don't know. I don't want to be. I hate being wrong, so I'm not going to set myself up for a year from now to be wrong.
2: Yeah. No. Nor am I. I mean, you know, they just they just did this, you know, small build back better or whatever they're calling it. And I mean, the the tax element of it changed overnight. So the idea that Chelsea and I would have a, a real clue as to what, you know, the 1031 rules might look like at some point in the future. I mean, we don't know, you know, there's
1: real estate, sell your real estate now, if you're worried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah.
0: funny. It's funny. There's a, you know, it's it's crazy. I shake my head at the, the, the level of distrust with the government. I was just getting a driver's license today because we just got a new house and. And they asked me if I wanted to be an organ donor. And the lady said, most people don't do it around here because they're afraid the government's going to knock on their window and come steal their their organs from them. You know, you know, like I'm like, is really? really, like, you know, <laughs> so, geez, I, you know, you you know, there's a but but, but it, so there's a lot of fear that could go around. But but if if it is true that if someone owns one hundred million dollars of real estate and they've got a $50 million gain on it and they have to realize $49,500,000 of that gain and pay taxes on it and can't defer it through the 1031. Now, now that I have no knowledge about whether this will happen or not, but if that were to ever become in play, I think we'd be, everyone would be jumping from tall buildings in the real estate.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty big lobby around this. I mean, you know, private equity got carried interest, you know, pushed to the sidelines. So I think it's a pretty big issue and, uh, Again, I, I don't want to make predictions either, but um, I'll leave it at take, that.
0: Take me to cap rates then. What's going to give me some? Uh, th- another question was asking specifically in brands, okay? And it was that specifically, you know, we, we won't mention the brands particularly, but the two brands that were mentioned were QSR brands that are typically two of the three or four uh, best performing, you know, most attractive uh, brands. So take us through your all's thought on when you're selling real estate, and let's call it a bucket A, bucket B, and bucket C, okay? So bucket A is going to be the the highest quality QSR assets, you know, in great geographies. Bucket B is, you know, a little bit less, but still pretty good. And then bucket C are smaller concepts, you know, take us through those buckets, how you think about cap rate pricing. And then after that, I'm going to ask, like, how how is that going to be changing in the next three to six and nine months? But what do you think, Chelsea? What What do you got?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think your best stuff, you know, somewhere in the fours, high fours, you know, then kind of just goes fives to sixes. You know, a lot of the portfolio deals are getting done, you know, in the six-ish range, you know, when they're kind of the M&A deals. And, you know, like I mentioned before, not really a Josh strategy, but if they are going to be flipped out after, or if we are just looking at them at one-offs, you know, we're looking at something in the fives. But, you know, I think everybody thinks that cap rates are going up. You know, we've already seen it. Like we said, I would say... had to put a number on it they're probably up 50 80 somewhere in that range you know basis points and i think they're going to continue going up i mean there's no reason to expect that cap rates are going to go lower with everything that we're seeing and you know if they went back to 2016 2017 levels i think there's probably another 100 basis points or so to go but you know i think like josh said even if those movements come to fruition from a multiple arbitrage perspective it still makes a ton of sense you know a ton of sense you're still have a ton of spread you're still even if you're at like a 7 cap it's 14 times you're really not selling your business for 14 times or greater than that so i think maybe this the spread shrinks but when you look at alternative forms of financing and what that means for you know if you're not going to do this and you're just going to finance your real estate you know what does that mean for your interest rates on a mortgage and i still think that the relative arbitrage still makes sense
0: yeah i'm still doing a math equation here so This is interesting, though. But even even if we think it's going to go up, you know, the eighty, you know, as you say, hundred basis points from here, that would make, you know, on a simple million dollar deal, if you were going to sell it at a five five and a half cap rate, right, you'd be getting one point four five million, and if you're going to sell it at a six and a half cap rate, you're going to get one point two three million, right? So that's over two hundred thousand. Which is a 20% drop in valuation. So this is just so just to just to hear it, if you're listening on this call, man, or or on the podcast, like what you just said is not immaterial. Prices are going to be getting worse for the value of your real estate because the interest rates are changing. And if the and if the cap rates change by a hundred basis points or one percent, and if we use the example of going from five and a half percent cap rate to a six and a half percent cap rate. You know, you're talking a 20%, possibly 15 to 20% drop in your in in your valuation. Now, that's that's if you were paying all cash.
2: Well, yeah, but. but but Rick, that also assumes that the cash flow of that asset hasn't moved. And I would I would get I would suggest that the. You know, change in margins, uh, and and they've directionally been, you know, EBITDA margins have been declining. That's probably a more meaningful driver of of the difference in valuation. But yes, you're correct. In terms of sort of your your question, I mean, I agree with Chelsea. Look, I mean, there's a there's a whole category of QSR that we've never been able to touch. You know, the McDonald's, the Chick Fil A's, the Chipotle's. Those have been really the bevy of, of the 1031 buyer, those yields have never been in a place that have made sense for a institutional buyer. Just there's no spread. I mean, we are in the spread business really, but you know, your garden variety and Taco Bell and, and Wendy's were mentioned in the question, those deals that might've been kind of high fives on a portfolio basis you know, say end of last year are probably in the low sixes is sort of a good number. Maybe it's six and a half if it's a, you know, slightly more marginal credit or weaker performing assets or...
1: Outsized you know, rents, rents that are too yeah, fast. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So there's, there's so many variables that come into play. But again, I think directionally... And, and one other way to think about it is that, you know, some of the stuff that was trading at the lowest cap rates, those have probably moved wider than kind of the, the middle market franchisee credit that, Rick, you're generally have been selling. Again, those, those deals are probably 25 to 50 basis points kind of move. We did a deal that you were involved in that closed, I think, December 30th of last year. That deal today is probably 25 basis points wider today. that. Okay. okay. So,
0: okay. yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting too. You know, Chelsea was the one bringing it up earlier about how on another call about how geography kind of makes a difference too. We've always known that, right? And to put, you know, and you were saying, Chelsea, maybe expound on this, that like California is an area that where when you're doing single unit, you know, selling single properties, that's a really hot area. And then you, you pick no tax states like Texas, Florida and Tennessee, yeah. right? Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you think about geography when you're selling these assets.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think in terms of those markets, it's the 1031 driven kind of component there on pricing. So the tax-free states, you know, California, it's really, I would say, heavy loaded 1031. But in terms of the geography, I think, you know, it's a consideration right now, especially in like flight to quality, right? Like the real estate fundamentals, again, we come back to that, you know, can you do something else with this property? Like people are gonna pay more, they're gonna focus more on these better located assets, main and main, you know, you do have to think about your downside more than you would in kind of just a, you know, not as volatile markets. So I think that's coming into play, you know, and then just like on the rent side, obviously if you're in the middle of nowhere and it's a challenging credit and it's, you know, not one of the top brands, you know, you're paying more attention to your rent numbers, making sure that your coverage is your rent to sales, you know, all these different kind of factors when you're underwriting, you know, that these all check the box and make sense. I think you can be, a bit less uh, stringent on your underwriting criteria when you have the real estate fundamentals kind of backing you up your basis makes sense you know land values your real estate is stronger you're at kind of the broad intersection you have the traffic counts you know it just kind of prevents you from having to be so strict on those you know four prongs that josh mentioned
0: yeah it's good it's great thanks for sharing that what about uh talk to us a little bit about the process and timeline of selling real estate like Give us a 101. So assume I don't yeah, know anything. Yeah. Like, what happens? I got a piece of real estate out in the field with a KFC sitting on top of it. What what happens?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we always start with valuation, just like you do, I'm sure when you're pitching business, you know, make sure we're on the same page, we're setting expectations, you know, we come to you with a proposal, here's where we can execute, we're typically giving a range, we're showing them our proposed lease terms. So if they say, hey, we want to pay 10% rent to sales, you know, we're saying, no, here's our valuation, this is based on this set of lease terms. And this is what, you know, we would recommend that buyers will get on board with, you know, this is what we should go to market with. We'll present that you know that range of valuation, those lease terms. Typically, you know, if they're ready to make a decision quickly, it moves rather you know fast. Maybe a week, we're signed up. About a week and a half to get our packages ready. You know, we get a data room going just like you, and we go out to our buyer network. And I would say typically within you know three weeks we have offers in. You know, maybe another week or so to kind of refine LOIs, get our you know best and final, get to a point where we're ready to execute an LOI. And then this is where you know the market has moved a bit. I mean, I would say. Traditionally, you know, it's like a week and a half to two weeks to get a PSA executed. Then you have your 30-day diligence, and then, you know, 15-day closing. And that was kind of the norm. Now I'll tell you, you know, we just signed up a deal to 25-day diligence, five day closing, and the diligence is starting upon an executed LOI. And, you know, that's extremely fast, but we're doing this because we're trying to box in risk as much as possible and really, you know, try and mitigate any potential retrades, because we're just boxing in that time so that they have to move so quickly. You know, even if the markets move, they're hopefully not gonna move that fast that we could kind of run the risk of a potential retrade. And so in order to accommodate that and, you know, make that possible, we're kind of taking some steps, you know, to, to make that timing work. So, you know, we're having our sellers, our clients order third party diligence, you know, get their phase ones going, get the survey started, start opening title. And then we're, you know, assigning those reports to the buyer. So that they can just come right into third parties instead of waiting for that executed PSA. And a lot of buyers, you know, I know Josh on on one of our last deals, you guys are comfortable starting diligence with the executed LOI, you know, we're getting an access agreement in place versus waiting for a PSA. And it's just helped us speed up, you know, a lot of these processes and we're keeping the deals on the market shorter so that, you know, we're able to close quicker and, and make sure we're really mitigating that period of risk
0: let me jump in and i want you to answer too, josh chelsea it's a great that was a great answer to that question uh, yeah i would say the same things on on unbridled business too i mean yeah. probably ha- probably half of the deals we're doing this year we're not taking to a broader market because we de- because we're worried about the amount of time that right. that it's going to take and we're really under pressure to get it done quickly with changing interest rates and changing borrowing you know uh credentials from the buyers you know so so uh, I, I kind of, kind of echo that. You kind of sound almost exactly like we do. Uh, your timelines are a little bit re- unrealistic for, for selling a company <laughs> because we got to deal with franchisors and we got to deal with all these we things that take more time, you know. But yeah. uh, but but it's it, the same steps, you know. Obviously, I would just say the same steps, but I'm not. I didn't follow the numbers exactly, but probably double everything she says, and that's kind of what we go through. Um, but but the noted, noted that we want speed because we have a lot of. You said boxing in risk. We want to box in risk in a time where we have a lot, buyers,
1: of uncertainty. Like, you know, if it were up to the buyers, most of them probably wouldn't retrade, but it's they're getting retraded by their lenders. And so it's really just for groups that are financing, especially this is a, you know, a bigger consideration, but it's not always in their control. There's always, you know, vendors and other people that are just kind of slow in these processes. So we're just trying to do everything we can to speed it up.
2: What do you say, Josh? Chelsea kind of walked through her timeline. I mean, ours is a little different depending on kind of how the deal is being sourced. I mean, sometimes we're seeing deals from Chelsea and her peer brokers. Sometimes it's a you know relationship tenant. Sometimes it's somebody that calls out of the blue and says, hey, I've got 10 this, that, or the others. Can you take a look? What can you do? I mean, ultimately, it starts with gathering data, addresses, store-level P&Ls, some kind of you know, at least high level corporate financials, you know, pretty quickly based on technology and our having done this a million times, we can kind of chapter and verse say, here's what can be done in terms of, you know, here's acceptable level rents, here's cap rate, here's what the lease term's going to look like, here's what the basic terms of the triple net lease are going to look like. And we could have an LOI to somebody on a deal in a couple of days. I mean, it's obviously easier if you're you've got more data, but oftentimes, you know, we can turn around our thoughts on a particular opportunity very quickly. That LOI may get negotiated once it's signed. You go to negotiating a contract and a lease. If it's in the context of an M and A deal, you kind of have to marry that to the underlying PSA or LOI on the M and A deal. Chelsea talked about third party reports. I mean, we need title survey, environmental, zoning reports. We don't do appraisals, and we don't have a lender looking over our shoulders, which helps us from a certainty of execution standpoint. But you know, the third party reports tend to be a gating item. You know, it's it's taken longer. It's taken longer since pre COVID even the poll title depends on the jurisdiction, you know, environmental services providers have tried to skinny down their liability. There's all kinds of issues that you encounter, but ultimately you get through the third party reports, you get through the negotiation of the contract and lease and, you know, address any kind of titles, survey type of issues, environmental stuff, and then you close. I mean, we, we can start a deal and kind of be done in realistically 45 to 60 days. Have we moved faster than that? If, you know, the stars are aligned, sure. You know, we're working on a deal today where the third parties were ordered and, you know, you close in 30 days. Uh, It also depends on if it's a repeat deal. We tend to do a lot of repeat transactions with folks. And so you don't spend a lot of time renegotiating the lease or the contract. And so that's kind of how it works. As Chelsea said, some folks, some buyers have lenders that they've got to work with that adds a layer of uncertainty to things particularly in this kind of world that that we're this macroeconomic environment capital markets environment etc so
0: one of the things i just would again uh, highlight it's these, these are good comments you know getting in front like whether you're selling someone's company or selling someone's real estate or both or whatever you're doing you know, getting in front of the key gating items early in the process is really is really a, a wise thing to do now. Sometimes if you're someone, if we're selling a large company for somebody and we know that there's going to be, um, you know, quality of earnings that's going to be ordered by the, you know, family office or private equity group. In the past, we haven't been so aggressive at trying to pull that forward and to do that quality of earnings before the business goes up for sale. Um, because that cost then has to be borne by the actual seller of the business and it can be fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000. It's expensive um, on a, a larger transaction. But those are the types of things in our process that like sometimes if you delay it towards after, during due diligence, it can stretch the deal out uh, a little bit more. So those are some of the things like ordering appraisals and things that you can get in front of.
2: Well, yeah. And as, as Chelsea said, like, we're seeing more and more deals, particularly when a seller knows that the real estate component of the transaction is likely to be large, it's a large piece of the capital stack, there's going to be a sale lease back, regardless of buyer. Now, not every buyer wants to monetize every asset, like there could be elements of the real estate that doesn't get financed. But if the if the if the seller uh, is wise, you know, they get those third parties ordered, you know, ahead of time. It, it expedites the transaction. And, and, you know, it's all math. Some of those costs might be eaten by me ultimately if I end up, you know, buying the assets, but it's an upfront cost that may be, you know, worthwhile for a seller to, to expend upfront to, to, to add certainty to the, to the transaction.
0: And also from an advisor standpoint, and Chelsea, you probably agree with this. If the seller agrees to, to 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 spend the money, you know, to make the deal go faster, you probably feel better that you've got a committed seller. We typically don't have that problem as much, but but some people do. I know. So yeah, um, no, so.
1: We, we would appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you know, it's typically our clients are bringing us in, like when they're bidding on a business or when they're, you know, like looking at a deal with the banker are even spending money before they, they know that they're awarded the opportunity and we're advising them saying, hey, look, you're going to need phase one surveys, title work, you know, property condition reports. We are trying to actually encourage them to order as much as they can, even before they're awarded the business. Like some of them are just running full speed at, you know, trying to get it closed and, you know, whatever kind of structured deal that is, but they're not actually like signing an APA and then getting their diligence process. They're kind of just you know, doing it all at the same time. So in those situations, we're telling them like what the sale back buyer is going to need. Cause like Josh said, especially if the real estate is a larger component of the deal, like if there's environmental issues, we want to get in front of it. We don't want surprises when we have the sale back buyer already in the mix. And then, you know, things could fall apart. We lose our leverage with the competitive process. We're now working with one buyer. We don't have our, you know, three backup buyers. And so things can get challenging. So to the extent that we know of any issues or to the extent that we can just you know, convince our, our clients to really get a jump start on those reports, we definitely, we go that route.
0: Awesome. Let me, let me say something here that I really, that I, that I really think is a great question. I'm sorry to cut you off, Josh. I know you had something to say. Uh, there's a question that, 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 that I think is a really good one here. It's how do you value the sub 2.0 rent coverage sites in a portfolio? And how do you value many master leases in sub 1.0 sites and big franchisees? This is a very good question. Is is
2: that what I was pointing to? I I saw uh, Mike's uh, question there. Yeah,
0: these are questions. I mean, I deal with this on every single deal, right?
2: Maybe I'll tackle that one first. Um, You know, look, so, so some some tenant slash sale leaseback users won't do master leases. Um, you know, perhaps the franchisor doesn't allow it. Perhaps the lender to the to the tenant sale leaseback uh, uh, partner of ours won't won't go for it. Uh, you know, master leases tend to be kind of a credit enhancement tool, particularly in a scenario where you have some assets that aren't performing as well as others. Um, I I guess our thought around that is you got to be really cautious about wanting to monetize those assets that have weak coverage. Like you shouldn't be entering into 15 or 20 year sale leasebacks on assets that aren't covering or are barely covering. And usually those are low volume stores. Uh, So low volume, lower margin, you know, those may not be assets that the operator slash tenant uh, is likely to operate for a long time. So there could be plenty of reasons why, you know, a certain store, you know, there was a road closure. There was there were some circumstances that are driving that coverage. But I would certainly say if it's a lower volume store or it's a it's always been a low margin store, or it's always been kind of one of those you know, questionable. Is this a long-term, you know, has the market moved kind of uh, stores? Those may not really, those perhaps shouldn't be in the sale lease back to begin with. Uh, I think you can get away with some sub two O coverage stuff in a master lease context, but you know, if it's probably sub one and a half times, one and a quarter times, depending on the circumstances, there isn't a, there isn't a answer that like for every situation, but those are just assets that that beg spending more time thinking about whether they should be part of the the sale lease, back to begin with, um, and so that
0: political answer. Look at you giving the mm-hmm. political answer, man. You know, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I how know. how much does it affect cap rates? How, how much you got a bu- you got a bunch of them that drop the cap rate? Fifty basis points, or, or you know, uh, are you more likely to walk away from the deal if you see? Well, those
2: I would say we. I would say, look, y- yes, cap rate, cap rates are a reflection of of risk to some extent, but we never really solve risk with materially higher cap rates. All you're doing is is potentially uh, making it the situation perhaps worse. Um, so. Um, again, that's sort of the thoughtful process. Whether you're, you know, NNN as buyer, or whether Chelsea is your advisor, is figuring out which assets to include and where to set the rents. It's only a sub 2-0 coverage because that's the rent that you put on it. So maybe maybe it warrants lower rents, and so um, those are all things that we consider. It's very important, and you know, at the margins, that tends to be. Something we spend, we spend probably more time thinking about those kinds of things than the store that's, you know, four times cover, uh, certainly.
0: One of yeah. the things that, go ahead, Chelsea, yeah.
1: And I was just gonna say, I have like kind of two points on that, like I think for us, when we see that, it's, you know, either what you said, like the rents are just too high and there's something wrong, or it's like an operational issue. Something happened at the site, like you said, maybe it was a situational, you know, factor. And so when we see those situations, you know, we're trying to understand like, are you leaving money on the table by, you know, like trying to size off of a rent that has been impacted for some reason, maybe it's a new location or, you know, and whatnot. And so we always run the analysis of like, maybe it makes more sense to just hold off on that site, exclude it from the deal, wait until it can support a market rent and therefore a market valuation based on, you know, like a regular kind of recurring or fixed, you know, EBITDA, the site, whatever it is that's causing that issue. The flip side is like, you know we do a lot of deals like not in the qsr space but with you know like a c store operator in south florida really great real estate coverage is a lot of the time limited operational you know it's just a small business or they're trying to juice proceeds and so you're not at you know two times coverage you're something south of that but it's kind of like a covered land play the residual value is so strong that you almost don't care right if the coverage isn't there the you know the investor has value in the dirt and so you know you're, you're not as worried so i think those are the kind of situations that we see but if it's just if operator wants to juice rents. You know, I, I agree with Josh. I don't think there is a price. You can't solve that issue with just a higher cap rate because a lot of the buyers will just say no. We don't want that in the deal, regardless.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we did a, a deal with I would I would call a questionable credit several years ago, and you know we were hopeful that the business could kind of get turned around. COVID sort of interfered, but. The the whole um, much of the thesis around the deal was it was very low rents and low price points. So to kind of Chelsea's uh, point, you know, we obviously wanted the business to perform. We wanted them to pay the tenant to pass rent for a long period of time. But if the rents are set at a level that it's low enough, um, you know, there there's some layer of or level of confidence you can garner simply by. You know it being very replaceable rents uh and or you know highly alternative you know we can knock the building down and ground lease it to somebody there can be sort of other angles but um no
0: well i'll say let me say this from the MA advisory standpoint you talk about a master lease which is basically you have an overall lease over all the stores so that if any one store can't pay the total amount, right, then the other stores will kick in the extra rent to make the total. And they and Josh called that a credit enhancement. And you could see why the buyer of the real estate, if they had an overarching master lease over top of it, would either do one of two things, either make them more comfortable with the deal, presumably, or it would uh you know maybe improve their price in terms of how much they're willing to pay you for the for the for the restaurants, right? Or the businesses. From an M&A advisory standpoint, I would just caution the people listening that master leases are are very difficult to sell if someone is an is an operator who has done who has a master lease on a lot of restaurants, and then he comes here or she comes to us and says, We want to sell this business and it's got master leases on it, it probably drops the buyer pool unfortunately so those are just things that i would uh, caution people to consider and this is not a knock on either of you but it is a it is an advisor's comment to say that you need to talk with an advisor that's that sees both sides of the picture before chasing a slightly higher price on the real estate side at the benefit of of a higher price but hard or impossible to sell later when you want to leave
2: i would also say Rick, there are certain franchisors in qsr land that frankly, won't allow for master leases anymore. They've been burned, they... Chelsea was going in the direction of there's some benefits in a bankruptcy situation to the landlord and you know the the tenant would have to reject basically the, the one lease, a great. lot of assets. So that it's unlikely that the tenants to, to walk away, but from the franchisor's perspective, they may have to step into the shoes on you know, a large master lease involving a lot of properties to kind of preserve the, you know, basically their royalties. So master leases can can play a role in certain transactions. They they are by no means kind of the norm.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: you guys, I uh, we have like another list of four or five questions, but you know, we got to have a hard stop here in a minute. So I, I want to thank you both for your time. I thought this was a really good discussion. A lot of depth around the real estate discussion. Thank you both. And for those of you who watched today or listened on podcasts, you've got Josh Lewis and you've got Chelsea Mandel. They're both on LinkedIn and you can find them on their company websites, Ascension for Chelsea, uh, National Retail Properties for Josh. I'm sure they'd be happy to answer questions for you related to real estate. You can call me or you know, I could get you in touch with them too. Thank you all for your expertise and thank you to everyone who's who's been a part of this webinar really appreciate it and uh, go get them it's going to get better come on we got thanks, it
2: thanks rick thanks Chelsea. enjoyed good it to
0: see you guys
2: all right take care thank you
0: Ciao. thanks so much for entering the boiler room today you can find our podcasts on itunes google play stitcher TuneIn, in and spotify if you like these podcasts please listen rate and review I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.